0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host, John Hagedorn. It's time for Chapters 3 and 4 from Roping Lions in the Grand Canyon by Zane Gray. And now, Chapter 3 Transporting our captives to camp bade fair to make us work. When Jones, who had gone after the pack horses, hove in sight on the Sage Flat, it was plain to us that we were in for trouble the bay stallion was on the rampage. "'Why didn't you fetch the Indian?' growled Emmett, who lost his temper when matters concerning his horses went wrong. "'Spread out, boys, and head him off.' We contrived to surround the stallion, and Emmett succeeded in getting a halter on him. "'I didn't want the bay,' explained Jones, but I couldn't drive the others without him. "'When I told that redskin that we had two lions, he ran off into the woods, so I had to come alone.' "'I'm going to scalp that guy,' said Jim, complacently. "'These remarks were exchanged on the open ridge at the entrance to the thick cedar forest. "'The two lions lay just within its shady precincts. Emmett and I, using a long pole in lieu of a horse, "'had carried Tom up from the canyon to where we had captured the lioness. "'Jones had brought a pack-saddle and two panniers. "'When Emmett essayed to lead the horse which carried these,' "'The animal stood straight up and began to show some of his primal desert instincts. "'It certainly was good luck that we unbuckled the pack-saddle straps before he left the vicinity. "'In about three jumps he had separated himself from the panniers, "'which were then placed upon the back of another horse. "'This one, a fine-looking beast, and amiable under surroundings "'where his life and health were considered even a little, "'immediately disclaimed any intention of entering the forest. "'They sent the lions!' said Jones. I was afraid of it. I never had but one nag that would pack lions. Maybe we can't pack them at all, replied Emmett dubiously. It's certainly new to me. We've got to, Jones asserted. Try the sorrel. For the first time in a serviceable and honorable life, according to Emmett, the sorrel broke his halter and kicked like a plantation mule. It's a matter of fright. Try the stallion. ''He doesn't look afraid,'' said Jones, who never knew when he was beaten. Emmett gazed at Jones as if he'd not heard right. ''Go ahead, try the stallion. I like the way he looks.'' No wonder. The big stallion looked a king of horses, just what he would have been if Emmett had not taken him, what a colt, from his wild desert brothers. He scented the lions, and he held his proud head up, his ears erect, and his large, dark eyes shone fiery and expressive.'' "'I'll try to lead him in and let him see the lions. "'We can't fool him,' said Emmett. "'Mark showed no hesitation, nor anything we expected. "'He stood stiff-legged and looked as if he wanted to fight. "'He's all right. He'll pack them,' declared Jones. "'The pack-saddle being strapped on and the panniers hooked to the horns, "'Jones and Jim lifted Tom and shoved him down into the left pannier "'while Emmett held the horse.' "'A madder lion than Tom never lived. "'It was cruel enough to be lassoed "'and disgraceful enough to be long-tied, as Jim called it, "'but to be thrust down into a bag and packed on a horse "'was adding insult to injury. "'The lion frothed at the mouth "'and seemed like a fizzing torpedo about to explode. "'The lioness, being considerably longer and larger, "'was with difficulty gotten into the other pannier, "'and her head and paws hung out.' Both lions kept growling and snarling. "'I look to see Mark bolt over the rim,' said Emmett resignedly, as Jones took up the end of the rope halter. "'No siree,' sang out that worthy. "'He's helping us out. He's proud to show up the other nags.' Jones was always asserting strange traits in animals and giving them intelligence and reason. As to that, many incidents coming under my observation while with him and seen with his eyes." Made me inclined to his claims, the fruit of a lifetime with animals. That stallion, Mark, packed the lines to camp in short order, and, quoting Jones, without turning a hair. We saw the Navajo's head protruding from a tree. Emmett yelled for him, and Jones and Jim ha-ha'd him derisively, whereupon the head vanished and did not reappear. Then they unhooked one of the panniers and dumped out the lioness, "'Jones fastened her chain to a small pine tree, "'and as she lay powerless, "'he pulled out the stick back of her canines. "'This allowed the wire muzzle to fall off. "'She signaled this freedom with a roar "'that showed her health to be still unimpaired. "'The last action in releasing her from her painful bonds, "'Jones performed with a sleight-of-hand dexterity. "'He slipped the loop fastening one paw, "'which loosened the rope, "'and in a twinkling let her work all of her other paws free. "'Up she sprang.' "'Ears flat, eyes ablaze, mouth wide, once more capable of defense, "'true to her instinct and her name. "'Before the men lowered Tom from Mark's back, "'I stepped closer and put my face within six inches of the lion's. "'He promptly spat on me. "'I had to steel my nerve to keep so close, "'but I wanted to see a wild lion's eyes at close range. "'They were exquisitely beautiful, "'their physical properties as wonderful as their expression.' Great half-globes of tawny amber, streaked with delicate wavy lines of black, surrounding pupils of intense purple fire. Pictures shone and faded in the amber light. The shaggy tip plateau, the dark pines and smoky canyons, the great dotted downward slopes, the yellow cliffs and crags. Deep in those live pupils, changing, quickening with a thousand vibrations, quivered the soul of this savage beast, the wildest of all wild nature. "'unquenchable love of life and freedom, flame of defiance and hate. "'Jones disposed of Tom in the same manner as he had the lioness, "'chaining him to an adjoining small pine, where he leaped and wrestled. "'Presently I saw Emmett coming through the woods, leading and dragging the Indian. "'I felt sorry for the Navvy, for I felt that his fear was not so much physical as spiritual.' and it seemed no wonder to me that the Navy should hang back from this sacrilegious treatment of his God. A natural wisdom, which I had in common with all human beings who consider self-preservation the first law of life, deterred me from acquainting my august companions with my belief. At least I did not want to break up the camp. In the remorseless grasp of Emmet, forced along, the Navajo dragged his feet and held his face sidewise, though his dark eyes gleamed at the lions terror predominated among the expressions of his countenance. Emmett drew him within fifteen feet and held him there, and with voice and gesticulating of his free hand, tried to show the poor fellow that the lions would not hurt him. Davy stared and muttered to himself. Here Jim had some deviltry in mind, for he edged up closer. But what it was never transpired, for Emmett suddenly pointed to the horses and said to the Indian, "'Chinago, feed.' It appeared when Navvy swung himself over Mark's broad back that our great stallion had laid aside his transiently noble disposition and was himself again. Mark proceeded to show us how truly Jim had spoken. Sure, he ain't no use for the redskin. Before the Indian had fairly gotten astride, Mark dropped his head, humped his shoulders, brought his feet together, and began to buck. Now, the Navajo was a famous breaker of wild mustangs, "'but Mark was a tougher proposition than the wildest Mustang that ever romped the desert. "'Not only was he unusually vigorous, he was robust and heavy, yet exceedingly active. "'I had seen him roll over in the dust three times each way and do it easily, "'a feat Emmett declared he would never seen performed by another horse. Navi began to bounce. "'He showed his teeth and twisted his sinewy hands in the horse's mane. "'Mark began to act like a demon.' He plowed the ground, apparently he bucked five feet straight up. As the Indian had bounced, he now began to shoot into the air. He rose the last time with his heels over his head, to the full extent of his arms, and on plunging down, his hold broke. He spun round the horse, then went hurtling to the ground some twenty feet away. He sat up, and seeing Emmett and Jones laughing, and Jim prostrated with joy, he showed his white teeth in a smile and said, "'No bueno, damn!' I think all of us respected Navi for his good humor, and especially when he walked up to Mark, and with no show of the mean Indian, patted the glossy neck, and then nimbly remounted. Mark, not being so difficult to please as Jim, in the way of discomfiting the Navajo, appeared satisfied for the present, and trotted off down the hollow, with the string of horses ahead, their bells jingling. Campfire tasks were a necessary wage in order to earn the full enjoyment and benefit of the hunting trip and looking for some task with which to turn my hand, I helped Jim feed the hounds. To feed ordinary dogs is a matter of throwing them a bone. However, our dogs were not ordinary. It took time to feed them, and a prodigious amount of meat. We had packed between three and four hundred pounds of wild horse meat, which had been cut into small pieces and strung on the branches of a scrub oak near camp. Don, as befitted a gentleman and the leader of the greatest pack in the West, had to be fed by hand. I believe he would rather have starved than have demeaned himself by fighting. Starved he certainly would have, if Jim had thrown meat indiscriminately to the ground. Sounder asserted his rights, and preferred large portions at a time. Jude begged with great solemn eyes, but was no slouch at eating for all her gentleness. Ranger, because of imperfectly developed teeth rendering mastication difficult, "'had to have his share cut into very small pieces. "'As for Moe's, well, great dogs have their faults, as do great men. "'He never got enough meat. "'He would fight even poor crippled Jude, "'and steal even from the pups, "'when he had gotten all Jim would give him, and all he could snatch. "'He would growl away with bulging sides. "'How about feeding the lions?' asked Emmett. "'They'll drink tonight, replied Jones.' but won't eat for days, then we'll tempt them with fresh rabbits. We made a hearty meal, succeeding which Jones and I walked to the woods toward the rim. A yellow promontory, huge and glistening, invited us westward, and after a detour of half a mile we reached it. The points of the rim, striking out into the immense void, always drew me irresistibly. We found the view from this rock, one of startling splendor, The corrugated rim wall of the middle wing extended to the west, at this moment apparently running into the setting sun. The gold glare touching up the millions of facets of chiseled stone created color and brilliance too glorious and intense for the gaze of men, and looking downward was like looking into the placid, blue, bottomless depths of the Pacific. "'Here, help me push off this stone,' I said to Jones. We heaved a huge round stone, and were encouraged to feel it move. Fortunately, we had a little slope. The boulder groaned, rocked, and began to slide. Just as it toppled over, I glanced at the second hand of my watch. Then, with eyes over the rim, we waited. The silence was the silence of the canyon, dead and vast, intensified by a breathless ear strain. Ten long, palpitating seconds, and no sound. I gave up. The distance was too great for sound to reach us. Fifteen seconds. Seventeen. Eighteen. With that a puff of air seemed to rise, and on it the most awful bellow of thunderous roar. It rolled up and widened, deadened to burst out and roll louder, then slowly, like mountains on wheels, rumbled under the rim walls, passing on and on, to roar back in echo from the cliffs of the mesas. "'Roar and rumble! Roar and rumble! "'For two long moments the dull and hollow echoes rolled at us "'to die away slowly in the far distant canyons. "'That's a darn deep hole!' commented Jones. "'Twilight stole down on us, idling there, silent, "'content to watch the red glow pass away from the buttes and peaks, "'the color deepening downward to meet the Ebon shades of night.' "'creeping up like a dark tide. "'On turning toward the camp, "'we essayed a short cut, "'which brought us to a deep hollow with stony walls, "'which seemed better to go around. "'The hollow, however, was quite long, "'and we decided presently to cross it. "'We descended a little way, "'when Jones suddenly barred my progress with his big arm. "'Listen,' he whispered. "'It was quiet in the woods.' Only a faint breeze stirred the pine needles, and the weird, gray darkness seemed to be approaching under the trees. I heard the patter of light, hard hoofs on the scaly sides of the hollow. "'Dear?' I asked my companion, in a low voice. "'Yes. See,' he replied, pointing ahead. "'Just right, under that broken wall of rock. Right there on this side. They're going down.' I descried grey objects the colour of the rocks, moving down like shadows. Have they scented us? Hardly. The breeze is against us. Maybe they heard us break a twig. They've stopped, but they are not looking our way. Now I wonder. Rattling of stones set into movement by some quick, sharp action, an indistinct crash, but sudden, as at the impact of soft, heavy bodies. A strange, wild sound preceded in rapid succession violent brushings and thumpings in the scrub of the hollow. "'Lion, jumped a deer!' yelled Jones. "'Right under our eyes! Come on! Hi! Hi!' He ran down the incline, yelling all the way, and I kept close to him, adding my yells to his, and gripping my revolver. Toward the bottom the thicket barred our progress, so that we had to smash through, and I came out a little ahead of Jones.' "'and farther up the hollow I saw a gray, swiftly bounding object "'too long and too low for a deer, "'and I hurriedly shot six times at it. "'By, George, come here,' called my companion. "'How's this for quick work? "'It's a yearling doe.' "'In another moment I leaned over a gray mass huddled at Joan's feet. "'It was a deer, gasping and choking. "'I plainly heard the wheeze of blood in its throat, "'and the sound, like a death-rattle.' "'affected me powerfully. "'Bending closer, I saw where one side of the neck, low down, "'had been terribly lacerated. "'If you have another shot, put this doe out of agony.' "'But I didn't have a shot left, nor did either of us have a clasp-knife. "'We stood there while the doe gasped and quivered. "'The peculiar sound, probably made by the intake of air "'through the laceration of the throat, on the spur of the moment, "'seemed pitifully human.' I felt that the struggle for life and death in any living thing was a horrible spectacle. With great interest I had studied natural selection, the variability of animals under different conditions of struggling existence, the law whereby one animal struck down and devoured another. But I had never seen and heard that law enacted on such a scale, and suddenly I abhorred it. Emmett strode to us through the gathering darkness. "'What's up?' he asked quickly. He carried my Remington in one hand and his Winchester in the other, and he moved so assuredly and loomed up so big in the dusk that I experienced a sudden little rush of feeling as to what his advent might mean at a time of real peril. "'Emmet, I've lived to see many things,' replied Jones, "'but this is the first time I ever saw a lion jump a deer right under my nose.' As Emmet bent over to seize the long ears of the deer, I noticed the gasping had ceased, "'Neck broken,' he said, lifting the head. "'Well, I'm danged. Must have been an all-fired strong lion. "'He'll come back. You can be sure of that. "'Let's skin out the quarters and hang the carcass up in a tree.'" We returned to camp in half an hour, the richer for our walk by a quantity of fresh venison. Upon being acquainted with our adventure, Jim expressed himself rather more fairly than was his customary way. "'Sure that beats hell. "'I know there was a lion somewheres, "'because Don wouldn't lie down. "'I'd like to get a pop of that brood. "'I believe Jim's wish found an echo in all our hearts. "'At any rate, to hear Emmett and Jones "'express regret over the death of the doe "'justified in some degree my own feelings, "'and I thought it was not so much the death, "'but the lingering and terrible manner of it, "'and especially how vividly it connoted "'the wildlife drama of the plateau.' THE TRAGEDY WE HAD ALL BUT INTERRUPTED OCCURRED EVERY NIGHT, PERHAPS OFTEN IN THE DAY, AND LIKELY AT DIFFERENT POINTS AT THE SAME TIME. EMMETT TOLD HOW HE HAD FOUND FOURTEEN PILES OF BLEACHED BONES AND dried HAIR IN THE THICKETS OF LESS THAN A MILE OF THE HOLLOW ON WHICH WE WERE ENCAMPED. WE'LL ROPE THE DANG CATS, BOYS, OR WE'LL KILL THEM. IT'S BLOWING COLD. HEY, NAVY, COCO, COCO, CALLED EMMETT. THE INDIAN, CAREFULLY LAYING ASIDE A cigarette. "'kicked up the fire and threw on more wood. "'Discas, cold,' he said to me. "'Coco, bueno. Fire, good.' "'I replied, "'Me savvy, yes.' "'Sleepy?' he asked. "'Mucha,' I returned. "'While we carried on a sort of novel conversation "'full of Navajo, English, and gestures, "'darkness settled down black. "'I saw the stars disappear.' the wind changing to the north grew colder and carried a breadth of snow. I liked north wind best, from under the warm blankets, because of the roar and lull and lull and roar in the pines. Crawling into the bed presently, I lay there and listened to the rising storm wind for a long time. Sometimes it swelled and crashed like the sound of a breaker on the beach, but mostly, from a low incessant moan, it rose and filled to a mighty rush, then suddenly lulled. This lull, despite a wakeful, thronging mind, was conducive to sleep. We'll return with Chapter 4 of Roping Lines in the Grand Canyon by Zane Gray, right after these sponsor messages. Another day
1: is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
0: AND NOW CHAPTER FOUR To be awaked from pleasant dreams is the lot of man. The Navajo aroused me with his singing, and when I peeped languidly from under the flap of my sleeping bag, I felt a cold air and saw fleecy flakes of white drifting through the small window of my tent. "'Snow! By all that's lucky!' I exclaimed, remembering Jones's hopes. Straightway my languor vanished, and getting into my boots and coat I went outside. Navy's bed lay in six inches of snow. "'The forest was beautifully white. "'A fine, dazzling snow was falling. "'I walked to the roaring campfire. "'Jim's biscuits, well browned and of generous size, "'had just been dumped into the middle of our breakfast cloth. "'A tarpaulin spread on the ground. "'The coffee-pot steamed fragrantly, "'and a Dutch oven sizzled with great numbers of slices of venison. "'Did you hear the Indian chanting?' asked Jones. "'who sat with his horny hands to the blaze. "'I heard it singing. "'No, it wasn't a song. "'The Navajo never sings in the morning. "'What you heard was his morning prayer, a chant, "'a religious and solemn ritual to the break of day. "'Emmet says it's a custom of the desert tribe. "'You remember how we saw the Mokis "'sitting on the roofs of their little adobe huts "'in the gray of the morning. "'They always greet the sun in that way. "'The Navajos chant.' "'It certainly was worth remembering,' I thought, "'and mentally observed that I would wake up thereafter "'and listen to the Indian. "'Good luck and bad,' went on Jones. "'Snow is what we want, "'but now we can't find the scent of our lion last night.' "'Low growls and snarls attracted me. "'Both our captives presented sorry spectacles. "'They were wet, dirty, bedraggled. Emmett had chopped down a small pine.' "'the branches of which he was using to make shelter for the lions. "'While I looked on, Tom tore his to pieces several times, "'but the lioness crawled under hers and began licking her chops. "'At length Tom, seeing that Emmett met no underhand trick, "'backed out of the drizzling snow and lay down. "'Emmett had already constructed a shack for the hounds. "'It was a way of his to think of everything. "'He had the most extraordinary ability. "'A stroke of his axe... A twist of his great hands, a turn of this or that, made camp a more comfortable place. And if something, no matter what, got out of order or broken, there was Emmett to show what it was to be a man of the desert. It had been my good fortune to see many able men on the trail and round the campfire, but not one of them even approached Emmett's class. When I said a word to him about his knack with things, his reply was illuminating. "'I'm fifty-eight.' "'and four out of every five nights of my life "'I've slept away from home on the ground.' "'Jinego!' called Jim, "'who had begun with all of us "'to assimilate a little of the Navajo's language. "'Whereupon we fell to eating "'with appetite unknown to any save hunters. "'Somehow the Indian had gravitated to me at meal times, "'and now he sat cross-legged beside me, "'holding out his plate and looking as hungry as Moe's.' At first he'd always asked for the same kind of food that I happened to have on my own plate. When I had finished and had no desire to eat more, he gave up his faculty of imitation and asked for anything he could get. The Navajo had a marvelous appetite. He liked sweet things, sugar best of all. It was a fatal error to let him get his hands on a can of fruit. Although he inspired Jones with disgust and Jim with worse, he was a source of unfailing pleasure to me. He called me... "'Mr. Gay,' and he pronounced the words haltingly in low voice and with unmistakable respect. "'What's on for today?' queried Emmett. "'I guess we may as well hang around camp and rest the hounds,' replied Jones. "'I did intend to go after the lion that killed the deer, but this snow has taken away the scent.' "'It's for sure it'll stop snowing soon,' said Jim. "'The falling snow had thinned out and looked like flying powder.' The leaden clouds, rolling close to the treetops, grew brighter and brighter. Bits of azure sky shone through the rifts. Navi had tramped off to find the horses, and not long after his departure he sent out a prolonged yell that echoed through the forest. "'Something's up,' said Emmett instantly. "'An Indian never yells like that at a horse.' We waited quietly for a moment, expecting to hear the yell repeated. It was not— though we soon heard the jangle of bells, which told us he had the horses coming. He appeared off to the right, riding Foxy and racing the others toward camp. Cougar! Mucha big! Damn! he said, leaping off the Mustang to confront us. Emmett, does he mean he saw a cougar or a track? questioned Jones. Me savvy, replied the Indian. but teen He says trail! Trail! put in Emmett. "'I guess I'd better go and see.' "'I'll go with you,' said Jones. "'Jim, keep the hounds tight "'and hurry with the horses' oats.' "'We followed the tracks of the horses "'which led southwest toward the rim, "'and a quarter of a mile from camp "'we crossed a lion trail running at right angles "'with our direction. "'Old Sultan!' "'I cried, breathlessly, "'recognizing that the tracks had been made "'by a giant lion we had named Sultan. "'They were huge, round, and deep, and with my spread hand I couldn't reach across one of them. Without a word, Jones strode off on the trail. It headed east, and after a short distance, turned toward camp. I suppose Jones knew what the lion had been about, but to Emmett and me it was mystifying. Two hundred yards from camp we came to a fallen pine, the body of which was easily six feet high. On the side of this log, almost on top, were two enormous lion tracks, "'imprinted in the mantle of snow. "'From here the trail led off northeast. "'Darn me!' said Jones. "'The big critter came right into camp. "'He scented our lions and raised up on this log to look over. "'Wheeling, he started for camp on the trot. Emmett and I kept even with him. "'Words were superfluous. "'We knew it was coming. "'A made-to-order lion trail could not have equaled "'the one right in the backyard of our camp.' "'Saddle up!' said Jones, with the sharp inflection of words that had come to thrill me. "'Jim, old Sutton has taken a look at us since the break of day.' I got into my chaps, rammed my little automatic into its saddle holster, and mounted. Foxy seemed to want to go. The hounds came out of their sheds and yawned, looking at us knowingly. Emmett spoke a word to the Navajo, and then we were trotting down through the forest. The sun had broken out warm— "'causing water to drift off the snow-laden pines. "'The three of us rode close behind Jones, "'who spoke low and sternly to the hounds. "'What an opportunity to watch Don! "'I wondered how soon he would catch the scent of the trail. "'He led the pack, as usual, and kept to a leisurely dog-trot. "'When within twenty yards of the fallen log, "'he stopped for an instant and held up his head, "'though without exhibiting any suspicion or uneasiness.' THE WIND BLEW STRONG AT OUR BACKS, A CIRCUMSTANCE THAT PROBABLY KEPT DON SO LONG IN IGNORANCE OF THE TRAIL. A FEW YARDS FURTHER ON, HOWEVER, HE STOPPED AND RAISED HIS FINE HEAD. HE LOWERED IT AND TROTTED ON ONLY TO STOP AGAIN. HIS EASY AIR OF SATISFACTION WITH THE MORNING SUDDENLY VANISHED. HIS SAVAGE HUNTING INSTINCT AWAKENED THROUGH SOME CHANNEL TO RAISE THE SHORT YELLOW HAIR ON HIS NECK AND SHOULDERS AND MAKE IT STAND stiff. He stood undecided with warily shifting nose, then jumped forward with a yelp. Another jump brought another sharp cry from him. Sounder, close behind, echoed the yelp. Jude began to whine. Then Don, with a wild howl, leaped ten feet to alight on the lion trail and to break into wonderfully rapid plight. The seven other hounds, bunched in a black and yellow group, tore after him, filling the forest with their wild uproar. Hammett's horse bounded as I've seen a great racer leave the post, and his desert brothers, loving wild bursts of speed, needing no spur, kept their noses even with his flanks. The soft snow, not too deep, rather facilitated than impeded this wild movement, and the open forest was like a highway. So we rode, bending low in the saddle, keen eyes alert for branches, vaulting the white blanketed logs, and swerving as we split to pass the pines. The mist from the melting snow moistened our faces, and the rushing air cooled them with fresh, soft sensation. There were moments when we rode abreast, and others when we sailed single file, with white ground receding, vanishing behind us. My feeling was one of glorious excitation in the swift, smooth flight, and a grim assurance of soon seeing the old lion. But I hoped we would not rout him too soon from under a windfall, or a thicket where he had dragged a deer— "'because the race was too splendid a thing to cut short. "'Through my mind whirled with inconceivable rapidity "'the great lion chases on which we had ridden the year before. "'And this was another chase, only more stirring, more beautiful, "'because it was the nature of the thing to grow, always with experience. "'Don slipped out of sight among the pines. "'The others strung along the trail, glinted across the sunlit patches. "'The black pup was neck and neck with Ranger.' "'Sounder ran at their heels, leading the other pups. "'Mose dashed on doggedly ahead of Jude. "'But for us to keep to the open forest, close to the hounds, "'was not in the nature of a lion chase. "'Old Sultan's trail turned due west "'when he began to go down the little hollows "'and their intervening ridges. "'We lost ground. "'The pack left us behind. "'The slope of the plateau became decided. "'We rode out of the pines to find the snow failing in the open.' "'Water ran in little gullies and glistened on the sagebrush. "'A half-mile further down, the snow had gone. "'We came upon the hounds running at fault, except Sounder, and he had given up. "'All over,' sang out Jones, turning his horse. "'The lion's track and his scent have gone with the snow. "'I reckon we'll do as well to wait until tomorrow.' "'He's down in the middle wing somewhere.' and it's my idea we might catch his trail as he comes back. The sudden dashing aside of our hopes was exasperating. There seemed no help for it. Abrupt ending to exciting chases were but features of the lion hunt. The warm sun had been hours on the lower end of the plateau, where the snow never lay long, and even if we found a fresh morning trail in the sand, the heat would have burned out the scent. So rapidly did the snow thaw that by the time we reached camp, Only the shady patches were left. It was almost eleven o'clock when I lay down on my bed to rest a while and fell asleep. The tramp of a horse awakened me. I heard Jim calling Jones. Thinking it was time to eat, I went out. The snow had all disappeared and the forest was brown as ever. Jim sat on his horse, and Navvy appeared riding up to the hollow, leading the saddle horses. Jones, get out! called Jim. "'Can't you let a fellow sleep?' "'I'm not hungry,' replied Jones testily. "'Get out and saddle up,' continued Jim. Jones burst out of his tent with rumpled hair and sleepy eyes. "'I went over to see the carcass of the deer "'and found a lion sitting up in the tree, "'feeding for all he was worth. "'Pie jumped out and ran up the hollow and over the rim. "'So I rustled back for you fellows. "'Lively now, and we'll get this one, sure.' "'Was it the big fellow?' I asked. "'No, but he ain't no kitten, and he's a fine color, sort of reddish. i never seen one just as bright. "'Where's Emmett?' "'I don't know. He was here a little while ago. Shall I signal for him?' "'Don't yell,' cried Jones, holding up his fingers. "'Be quiet now.' Without another word, we finished saddling, mounted, and, close together, with the hounds in front— Road through the forest toward the rim. Join us next week Sunday for chapters 5 and 6 of Roping Lions in the Grand Canyon. Hope you're enjoying the story, and if you are, please do take a moment and send us a review for 1001 Stories from the Old West. Until next time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.